0: there and welcome to Matters. I am Tessa Veria, your host, and today it is an absolute pleasure to be joined by Bronnie Lennox-Thompson. Bronnie is an occupational therapist who holds a master's degree in psychology and a PhD in rehabilitation medicine. She has worked in the field of chronic pain management for 20 years, as well as being a professor at the University of Ortego. During this episode, we discuss chronic pain, its management, and what contribution it has to the healthcare world. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Kinetic Link Training. Kinetic Link Training is a unique, revolutionary, and totally systematic approach to full-body, biomechanically balanced, functional strength training. To check out more of the highly practical and interactive courses, visit klt.fitness. Well, thank you so very much for being with us, Bronnie. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Now, chronic pain appears to be a word which gets thrown around a lot these days. Um, There's so much research on it. We also have clinicians with systems to, in very big quotations, because you can't see this, cure chronic pain.
1: Yeah.
0: Chronic pain is um, prolonged acute pain. How, However, we see very different chemical and physical changes between both of them um, when they're kind of studied separately. Yeah. What do you classify in your world as being chronic
1: pain? So, I mean, technically, it's pain that's gone on for three months or longer. And the duration's important. But as you said, there are different mechanisms involved. So some, some types of pains, like neuropathic pain, Um, they're going to be there and you know pretty much from the beginning this is likely to go on for a long time. With inflammatory pain, as long as it's tissue damage related, it's probably not going to go on forever unless it's an autoimmune disorder and then we've got another situation. And then we've got the weird types of pains like... um, complex regional pain syndrome type 1 and um, fibromyalgia and irritable bowel and lots of low back pain. <laughs> oh, um, that we, Yeah, they begin sort of, we don't know what the cause is, we don't know what the uh, mechanisms are and so we're kind of guessing and they generally hang about, which yes. is hard. Yeah, absolutely. I feel
0: like if we had the answer to this, we would all be millionaires. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but life would be so boring. <laughs> it would be. What else would we study? Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Now, obviously, through your many, many years of studying chronic pain, do you see research um, which suggests chronic pain could be the root cause of many other conditions, such as your say autoimmune conditions? Do you find that those links are being made
1: more frequently now? Um, no, I don't. I think we we don't know why some people develop chronic pain. Mm-hmm. We do know there's some relationships between, um, say, families that have types of pain problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't point to any single gene. And yeah. even if we could, it wouldn't explain everything there is to know about it. Yeah. Because even with um, genetically linked um, autoimmune disorders like ankylosing spondylitis you can mm. have somebody who's got the marker but they don't have the expression of it yes. um, and I talk a lot about spond because my partner lives with it I live with fibro and it's in my family so you know there's lots of we call them nociceptive pains where yes. we don't know the mechanism but it's a change in the way the nervous system's processing information and so there's probably some genetic stuff, but as for that predicting anything else apart from predicting really bad sleep, getting fed up with life, and the universe, and everything, probably it doesn't predict much of anything. It just hangs about. Do you
0: think we? Do you think maybe in say twenty to thirty years' time, we will look back? Um, what we know about pain now and it will be very different that we actually don't know a lot about it and there is still so much more to discover about chronic pain
1: i've been doing this for about 30 years yeah and i've been saying the same thing about back pain <laughs> <laughs> for the last 30 years so i think we've got um we're discovering more mechanisms, but it's a bit like lots of neurological disorders. Mm. We know a lot about them, but as for successful treatments, we are nowhere near. And you think about things like MS, motor neuron diseases, and you know all of those neurological problems. We do know a lot about them, mm. but, but our treatments aren't so successful in pain. If it's about a nervous system processing problem, then it boils down to a neurological problem problem maybe it's neuroinflammation maybe it's something else who would know early life stuff who would know but whatever it is even if we find the sort of the fix or the cure we've still got a person who's been living with this problem and they like low back pain they've accumulated all this knowledge from their own experience and from what they're told so we're always 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 going to be working with a person who has all these beliefs and understandings and experiences and that's what we're actually treating when we're working with somebody who has pain it doesn't really matter about the disease process as much as the person
0: yeah absolutely do you think that people nearly come with like a social or cultural backpack of things that they've learnt, they've heard, they know about that then also contributes to that change in chronic pain and their perceptions and what we're doing with that?
1: Yeah, there's certainly some evidence to show that, that if you tend to freak out and if you tend to see the world negatively, then it's more likely that you'll have trouble with your pain. But as far as increasing the prevalence or the duration, I think it's more that it applies to disability. So Mm -hmm. the impact of the pain on the person and a person's willingness and capability to do stuff that we're really treating. We're not treating a disease as much as the illness and the disability and the distress when we're working with people with pain. And I think we almost set the climate for recovery rather than actually directly touching on, in any way physically or metaphorically, on the processes that are involved really even with inflammatory conditions we're really saying actually these things are going to take some time to recover but by the way here are some things that you can do that might help you recover more quickly. So I think that's probably what we're doing and that means learning to feel less bothered by your pain, a bit more reassured um, less worried that you're doing harm and a little bit less disheartened by it but the message as I say, 30 years saying the same thing about low back pain, um, and I'm still saying it. <laughs> and people are still coming out with the same problems, which is, like, I need to have an image to find out what's going on inside my back. Uh, and yes. just this morning, I heard somebody say that they'd been told by an unnamed surgeon of unknown specialty, I'm not going to say anything, but they had the back of an 80-year-old, uh. and They had degenerative changes on their back and that was and a disc bulge and that was the cause of their back pain. Oh I'm so glad we have used your research to forward our thinking on pain for the last 30 years. <laughs> oh, look, we've got a long, long way to go when we, we really really understand do. the baggage that people bring with them, which is not just from your own personal experience. It's from Auntie Mabel and it's from the doctor that they saw and Dr. Google. They went on Instagram and they saw, here's your six exercises to fix your pain. I'm like, you're right. Come on. <laughs> not the way that, that it is. So we've got such a lot of work to do. It, look, it's
0: an exciting road, though, like that there is, that we are finding these things out and developing them. I guess the $1 million question, which everyone would like to know, managing chronic pain, what is your best advice to practitioners
1: who are managing clients with chronic pain? What's your, your best advice around that? I think we start with what does this person understand? What's their theory Mm -hmm. about why their pain's going on? And then what matters to them? What's the most important thing? You know, what's their main concern about it? And I was thinking about myself here. So I live with fibromyalgia and I had um, a flare-up because, you know, you do. And I was concerned about going on a tramp. I know, I know, Aussies will know what I mean by tramping. When I have to, when I speak to Americans, they don't get it. So <laughs> I have, I have to translate. Oh, I go hiking, <laughs> but you know, I was going going for a tramp, and it was a three day tramp, yeah. and with a heavy pack. And I was thinking, am I going to be okay? So that's what my main concern was. Yeah, is it okay for me to do this? And yes, of course it was. I just had to lighten some of the junk that was in my yeah. <laughs> Not quite so much wine <laughs> so because that's what you carry on on a um, on a pipe. <laughs> so um, yeah I think that's finding out what is the thing that bothers this person about their pain mm-hmm. what do they want to work on what are they ready for and then looking to personalize it and that might mean saying looking at say' we know movements a really good thing. As you know, the word exercise is, is a forbidden word. Don't like that word. Lots of my patients don't like it, and I don't like it either. So um, some movement opportunities. So yeah. what movement opportunities can be tailored to fit this person and their lifestyle and what they love to do? So I like to dance. I like to garden. I like to walk my dog. I like to swim. Not very well, but I do like being in water. <laughs> um, you know, there are lots of ways that we can integrate movement opportunities rather than the one size fits all, which is you've all got to go and do Pilates or you have all got to go and, and jump in the gym. Um, That's not what, what we know works for pain. It's not like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's really important, I think, for practitioners to remember
0: that chronic pain is so individualized. It is not a here is a system which you should apply to all of your um, chronic pain patients
1: or here's the protocol to curing chronic pain. It just doesn't happen like that. There's no algorithm for it. I mean, the the general principles are that we know that movement's good. Mm -hmm. We know that probably nothing much is going to change the pain all that much, pretty much for all types of pain. Mm -hmm. And I guess that, and even the effect sizes for things like exercise are pretty small. So that gives me lots of liberty to let's find the individual mixture of things that will give this person some chance to work out what works for them. So it might be a combination of mindfulness, um, some movement stuff that they enjoy doing, um, maybe some medications but often not, um, lots of relaxation and lots of fun. And you put those things together and and maybe change their seating if you know mm-hmm. if you're sitting for a long time in one position it's not that great um how can you break up your day in many ways it's an occupational therapy approach so i'm going to just wave the ot flag here
0: yes no i feel um, i
1: feel in australia they're very
0: underestimated in the portion
1: and the role that they play in that oh yeah. across the around the world we know but yep. they're individualizing and saying so if you're going to do some exercises when's the best time to do it how's it going to fit in with your other responsibilities in your day Um, could you mix it in while you're waiting for the jug to boil you're making a coffee when you're supposed to be doing your pelvic floor exercise in the loo is there anything else that you could be doing Um, how can you blend it so that it's it's sort of built in as these um little routines that then become much more automatic And then we don't look as if it's the special thing that I do because of my pain. It's just part of a healthy lifestyle. And I think that's protective and it normalises the fact that we all need to do these healthy things. And that, yes, I've got a pain problem, but it doesn't make me weird. Well, (laughs) not more weird (laughs) than I am. Also, means we personalize it. it, just turns into you your life rather than this artificial life that we can place on people when we say, Oh, well, now you've got to do these exercises three sets of ten, and they look at you with that look, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you think, <going>, Oh, god, <laughs> yeah, because that's not that doesn't fit for everybody. body. If somebody wants to go kayaking or they go cycling or they like to potter about in the garden or do their housework really vigorously to loud rock music, use <laughs> those, you know, that's the whole idea of it. Yeah, I've heard that concept
0: of, you know, creating or trying to add habits in to attach it to a normal thing that you do every day in your life, attach it to that thing like, brushing your hair or in the shower or yep. at the like attach it to that and it really normalizes
1: it so much nicer for people as well. Much easier for you to remember. It hooks it into an existing routine that you already do. And then the learning starts to chain itself. So it's much, much easier to to actually do. Because, you know, the exercise idea is fantastic and we know that it's really helpful. But no exercise is going to be very good if the person doesn't remember to do it. And we know adherence to movement and exercise is pretty skinny. <laughs> people get told to do stuff and they nod and they yes, yes, and then they go away and completely ignore it. Yeah, I mean people do that because they don't like homework anyway, and that goes for all our cognitive and behavioural therapies as well. We want to, um, I don't do homework. We do missions that you should choose to you could choose to to accept or not depending on you but it's much more adult and um, it implies that you've got a choice which is really good and it also means that it's something that you choose to go and do and that makes it a real thing you know not just a, I'm doing it to because I'm in school and you're telling me off if I don't do it. <laughs>
0: Such a, such a nice way to use i think using it as as a mission um, that gives them that open board for them to be on board yeah. now we your study of chronic pain out of all of the years you have been doing that, this what has been the most surprising thing that you have found from that most oh,
1: surprising oh. um i think my own phd blow my own trumpet so my PhD was that um looking at people who live well with pain Mm. And when I started um doing it I thought I would have a list of things that people do that were on the good list and the list of things that people do that are on the bad list and you know don't do the bad things do the good things but what I found and a lot of our coping strategies questionnaires and things have Mm. passive and active coping strategy good like good and bad coping strategy and what I found was that amongst these people who self-identified as living well with moderate to severe intensity pain but low disability they were doing all sorts of things that included passive as well as active yeah that it was the context and how they used it and you know they did booming and busting we're all told that's a really bad thing, you shouldn't be doing it. But as one person said to me, what does it matter if I feel better in the morning and yep. I, do, I schedule my stuff in the morning so that in the afternoon I can take it easier yep. so that I can do what matters? And I think when I looked at that and um, what we do around Christmas, which is rapidly approaching horrors, we run around like blue ass flies and then before. <laughs> Am yes. I right? Yeah. And yeah. then on Christmas Day, and then we crash. Yeah. Because that, and that is normal. And I guess what the these people were saying was that if this thing that I want to do is really important to me, then I will do that. And, yeah, my pain will probably go up, mm. but as long as I plan for that, as long as I do that with thought and awareness, then what does it matter? Yeah. And I think that was a nice thing. It was liberating Yeah. And that we can add in stuff that we've thought, you know, if somebody wants to have a hands-on treatment and they find that really helpful, then why not do it? If they're choosing and they're not um, relying on it as their own strategy, but they choose to do it. I had a flare-up with my neck and I went to see one of my massage therapists. And she's amazing, and I got the best treatment ever. My pain didn't change a lot, but I felt cared for, and I felt like I was able to relax just for that hour. And so what I've kind of thought from learning from that is that the notion that there are good and bad ways of coping is probably a bit simple. What we're looking at is good and not so good in different contexts. Yeah, really. Absolutely nice. fine to to rest if you want to, mm-hmm. as long as that's not all you do, and you choose when. It's that versatility and being flexible mm-hmm. about how you use the strategies that seems to be important. And I guess that would be the most surprising thing I found in in all my um, learning, really and it's kind of rocked my
0: world a bit, but <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool though it comes back to how important it is to be client that client-centered approach because yeah. um you know it, and i was talking talking to someone yesterday about the research that comes out and how it is in an isolated context and we need to yeah. make sure we decipher that research yeah and pull it apart and put it back together for our own individual clients and it's the same wow. with chronic pain as well that Um, the good and bad list may not be exactly what works for everyone (laughs) and I've been
1: working at this on this cultural um, aspects of pain, I've been teaching a course on it and preparing a presentation and one of the things that we struggle with in in Maori health is the idea that they have um, some hands on treatment and there are some things that are that a Maori person would really really value in healthcare and when um, that is being put forward as an idea for somebody um, in a public health system. The first reaction is, oh, what's the evidence for that? But in the context of a Maori health model and of this person's life and their mm-hmm. cultural and social connections, the sense of belonging, of whānau, of um, whole person connection is really really important and the spiritual connection is is really important we might not think about that as a you know for me as a Pakeha New Zealander but those cultural um, elements are important and perhaps that conflicts with our idea of what evidence-based practice is mm. but evidence-based practice is three things it's not just our research It's also our experience as clinicians that we gather over, you know, years and it's the person's own values and their preferences and sometimes I think we focus on the evidence base without looking at those other two elements and weighing them in Um, and that's that person centred care is really pulling those things together and um, in our artistry as clinicians is using what we know from each of those three elements to make something that actually works for this person.
0: Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to go about it, explaining that evidence-based practice is not just being a research but that mm-hmm. um, there are actual humans in front of us that have, yeah. you know, the spiritual connection and have the community connection and all those other things are so important to then getting that
1: success for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And what success yeah. looks like to them might be quite different from what I would like. To see, and that's that's also quite challenging because, again, we've got this idea in in our culture of um, you get your pain fixed or not, and then you go away, and I don't see you again as a clinician. But for some of our patients, that connection with clinicians is a really important part of their life and of of their self-management. So being able to check in periodically is a good thing from their perspective. The health funders might not like it, <laughs> but there's something worth putting into it, into the mix to think perhaps if we supported people more over a longer term, just intermittently, that that might actually reap dividends in terms of how much we have to put out when we abandon them and then they fall over and then they get in a really bad state and then they come back. I'm really shifting in my ideas of what it means, what success looks like to the person and to us in our healthcare system.
0: It's changing. It's changing and I think it is such a, a beautiful change to see coming through that um, I can't wait to see where that change really comes through for pain science and practitioners as well. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: thanks so much for joining us today, Bronnie, um, and sharing your so many years of pain science knowledge with us. Um, <laughs> completely invaluable um, it's a fascinating topic which as you know we still have so much more to learn about and progress with um, yeah, Absolutely, this can certainly take away from this and add some feathers to their cap hopefully about chronic pain management and what a vital part we play as clinicians and practitioners in their journey of chronic pain hopefully
1: yeah thank you very much the pleasure
0: thank you to our listeners for tuning in today and always supporting myo matters don't forget to visit our online store and check out what Pain Science PD is available to help support your growth. We look forward to seeing you again in Myo Matters from Myotherapy Australia.